to the Constructionist Podcast hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey and every week Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's word. podcast constructionist listeners who are desperately seeking to strengthen your soul and your mind and your heart in the word of Christ and letting it dwell in you richly, which is exactly what Paul says in Colossians 3.16, that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And this is a very important concept to bear in mind and an important discipline to throw yourself into because there is a problem in the world today that has existed since the early church, and that problem is what Peter calls twisting scripture. So if you read Peter's writings, First and Second Peter, he talks about how in the last days there will be unlearned men who will come and they will twist the scriptures and make them sound or say things that they shouldn't say. And I ran into this recently when... Uh, a guy I know sent me a screenshot of a post that was done by a chap that's got a philosophy YouTube channel. And he was making comments about slavery and that uh, Christians don't read their Bible properly, that the Bible really does condone or does not condone slavery. The, the Bible promotes slavery. And he uses this, among other things, he, he says that the Bible allows slave owners to viciously beat them. Those were the, the terms that he used, the phrase that he used. You can viciously beat your uh, slaves. So then at the end of his post, he says, we have to learn how to read the Bible correctly, which I don't disagree with that statement at all. We do need to learn how to read the Bible correctly. But the problem is, as I can tell from the guy's post, that he does not read the Bible correctly. For one thing, he was uh, reading his modern sensibilities back into the Bible and judging the people who lived uh, at that time and judging God, ultimately, for getting it wrong. It's exactly what he says. The Bible get, got it wrong, is what he said. Slavery is evil. The Bible got it wrong. But the problem is, is that, yes, the Bible allows for slavery, but not in the way he described it. He mis described the Bible's statements on slavery. There is nowhere in the Bible that says you can viciously beat your slave. So, uh, and he talked about, you know, capturing people in war and selling them off as family heirlooms or, or, or you know, passing them down from generation to generation as family heirlooms, things like that. Now, the Bible does allow for people to be caught during times of war. The Old Testament uh, allows for slavery. It allows you to buy people. It actually says in Deuteronomy that if you buy a servant or a slave or a bond servant with money, you, he, then you have to release him after seven years because there was a principle of seven-year release. And not only do you release him and just let him go free, he has the freedom to decide if he wants to stay with you and be your servant for the rest of his life. Also, if you let him go free, no, when you let him go free after seven years, you have to pay him. So you have to give him, it says, liberally or abundantly out of, out of what you possess. 
if he chooses to go free. If he chooses to stay, then he's your servant for life. But that's his decision. So we, and then if you do beat your slave and you knock out his tooth or you knock out his eye or something like that, the, the scripture says you have to let him go free. You've basically defaulted your, your good stewardship of that property, if you want to put it that way, uh, and you now are allowing him to go free for the sake of his tooth or the sake of his eye is what it says. So be careful when people say things like, oh, the Bible says this, because this is what they don't do. And this is what that guy didn't do. He didn't actually reference any of his statements to the Bible. He makes these grand comments about, oh, the Bible this, the Bible that, says this, says that. Never once put a Bible reference there. And I've noticed that that is the case with people who criticize the Bible sometimes, is that they don't put Bible references. They say the Bible says this, and then they have the foggiest idea where it is in the Bible. And I was just watching a video, you know, those stupid little real videos you get on YouTube or Facebook or something like that. And uh, there's this white girl saying, the Bible was written by white men, racist white men. (laughs) And, And a black guy actually responds to her and says, no, the Bible came out of the Middle East. It was written by people with brown skin like me. It was not written by white men. And the poor, I mean, the girl just, you know, had never heard that in her life because she had convinced herself that the Bible was written by, you know, racist white men. So we got to be very careful about what we think we know or what we think we believe about the Bible when we quote it, because like Peter says, there are people out there that will twist scripture and they'll make it sound like the Bible says one thing, but it actually doesn't. There's a book called A New Kind of Christianity by Brian McLaren, and he does this. He takes scriptures that are, uh, well, he talks about the history of slavery in the American South before World War, sorry, before the Civil War. And then by, uh, by extension, he turns around and, and says, you know, oh, slavery is bad, but there were people on this side of the argument and that side of the argument before the Civil War. One thing that's interesting is that what didn't seem to be promoted by the adherence of slavery before the Civil War was this idea of releasing the slave after seven years. (laughs) Nobody seemed to talk about that. And also, if you kidnap a man, it's a capital crime. So the Bible is very clear that if you, in the Old Testament law, if you kidnap somebody, then you were, um, that that was a crime that you could be put to death for. So all of these slave traders that went to Africa and just grabbed people, women, children, men, loaded them up as cargo in their ships and sent them off and sold them. They all were, in God's eyes, should have been put to death for kidnapping, which is what they were doing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a huge evil that exists, and there's issues on both sides. You know, then these slaves are sold in America, then you have these white Baptist Southern pastors or, you know, all sorts of pastors, not just Baptists. I'm not accusing them. They're Presbyterians and Methodists and all sorts, you know, and then they turn around and they're trying to promote slavery from a biblical point of view without looking at the whole picture. And this is where things start going wrong is you don't look at the whole picture. When scripture is twisted, it's usually because people aren't looking at the whole picture. So let's talk about this for a moment in light of a battle of of scripture quotations between Jesus and the devil. So in Jesus's temptation, he is 
presented by the devil with three challenges. <laughs> this sounds like some kind of, you know, fantasy quest. There were three challenges before you. So Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness, and then the devil comes along. And I think he came along twice. I think he came along once toward the beginning and then again toward the end and presented the same challenges to him to see if he could stand up to them after 40 days of fasting. And there's reasons I think that, but I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, he one of the temptations is that he took Jesus and put him on the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And then he says, cast yourself down from here, for it is written, quote, Psalm 91, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So in other words, chuck yourself off, Jesus, because the Bible says that if you do, God will protect you. And you'll, you know, gently float to the ground being carried aloft by angels. And then everybody will see you and it'll be this amazing miracle. And then everyone will think that you're this great Messiah. So that was the temptation. And he quoted the Bible. Now Jesus turns around and he quotes the Bible. He quotes from Deuteronomy. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, or you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The, the Greek word test, tempt, has uh, different nuances, but that's what it means. You should not test the Lord your God. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, yeah, but that is outside the norm. People don't go around typically just jumping off of buildings. It's not what is normal. There's a law called gravity that tends to suck you to the ground. And if you're high enough, you will die when you hit the ground. So why should I do something unnatural or out of the norm uh, simply because I think that God will just sort it out? You know, so that's his response. So what we have here is we have the devil, Satan, using scripture, using the word of God against the word of God. Now, this is called, this is what Peter refers to as scripture twisting. <laughs> so the devil did not quote the verse correctly. He misquoted it. And when I say misquoted it, I mean that he misquoted it in light of the whole concept or the whole context of the scriptures. So he quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a psalm that has no introductory phrase. We don't know if David wrote it. We don't know if Moses wrote it. We don't know if Asa wrote it. Uh, not Asa. Um, Asaph. He was the other big writer of the, Old Test of the psalms. We don't know who wrote it. It just starts out, uh, he who dwells in the shadow of the Most High. You know. So you end up with this psalm that's just got no real place as far as like setting or anything like that. It's like an eternal psalm, okay? So it's also been used in Jewish literature for exorcism rites. In the Septuagint, which would have been the Bible that Paul read and, and Peter and James and these guys that all grew up under the Roman Empire who would have learned Greek as a trade language uh, and a government language and things like that, they would have all understood or been able to read the Septuagint. The reason why the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in around 150 BC is because so many Jews were not speaking classic Hebrew. They were speaking Greek because of the Greek empire that was developed under um, Alexander the Great and then his four generals. 
And so by this time in history, they needed a Greek version of their Hebrew Bible. So you have the Septuagint, which means 70, because it was the traditionally 70 scholars that got together and translated the text into Greek. Anyway, their scholars love the Septuagint because in some ways it allows us to understand how at that time they understood the Hebrew text. So in Psalm 91, there's a verse that talks about uh, the destruction of noonday. Okay, I think it's verse 6. The destruction of noonday. But in the Septuagint, it has the Greek word for demon in there. And so it's the noonday evil spirit or the noonday demon. And so this, this whole passage has been used in pre-New Testament Judaism as, a, as an attack against evil spirits. They use this passage to protect themselves or they use it as, as a doctrinal, doctrinal statement of protection against evil spirits. And it's the very chapter that the devil quotes. So this is all wrapped up in the idea behind Psalm 91, if you look at it in its context. Now, uh, I know I knew a couple years ago that used Psalm 91 as a basis for not having health insurance, because if you read the psalm, it tells you that uh, if you're dwelling under the shadow of the Most High, then you'll be protected from pestilence and from darkness and from destruction and from heat and from calamity and a thousand will fall at your right side and no plague will touch you and all these things. So it's a great psalm and it's a highly encouraging psalm and you get down to the end of it and you're like, oh yeah, I'm invincible and then, you know, in, in the sight of God. But if you look at the whole Bible, you have to go up to Job and say, Job, what do you think of Psalm 91? Job had his family destroyed. He had his homes destroyed. He had his plague upon his body with his boils. His wife came and, you know, got on his case and nagged him and said, just curse God and die. And then he had his three friends show up, the miserable comforters, and they all arrived and accused him of, of some hidden sin and various things like that. So would Job have read Psalm 91 and said, oh, this is my verse, I'm going to stand on it, and now nothing's ever going to happen to me again? So we have to think about things sometimes from the broadest possible scope <laughs> and then narrow it down, all right? So what we have in the Bible is an irreducible complexity. We've got 66 books that are presented to us as the Word of God, inspired, authoritative text handed down from generation to generation by the people of God, recognized as the inspired Word of God. Now, these 66 books form a unit that we call a canonical whole, all right? We got the word canon, which means a standard or a measuring rod. And so, you know, nowadays in the film industry, you've got the Marvel canon and you've got the Star Wars canon and the Star Trek canon and things like that. So we use this term to mean that which is official. Fan fiction is outside of the scope of what is considered canon. So the Bible is the same. You have fan fiction, which is commentaries and devotionals and videos and, you know, all this stuff. Even what I'm saying right now in one sense uh, is fan fiction. It's outside. I'm not just reading scripture to you. So, but I'm commentating on it. And my responsibility is to be as faithful as possible to the whole canon, the whole 
collection of the 66 books and look at them in their entirety. The devil did not do this. <laughs> the devil took those verses out of Psalm 91, applied them in Jesus's life and said, well, go on then, do this thing because of what this verse says. And then the word of God turns around and says, well, no, I can't do that because he's looking at the broader scope. He's looking at the whole of scripture. So the devil is twisting it to mean something he wants it to mean, but Jesus is the word of God who looks at it in its broadest scope. The broadest scope is, is that God will protect you if you dwell under the shadow of his provision, of his, of his protection. So first of all, you have to recognize what's your position. Our position is in Christ. What is your calling in life? Your calling in life is to walk humbly with your God and to glorify him and give thanks day by day. The will of God, doing the will of God is the food of God. You know, that's what Jesus says. My, my food is to do the will of God. I operate, I function, I act only with what I see God doing, God the Father doing. We have this parallel in Genesis where Isaac kind of reflects the good and the bad of who Abraham is because he's the promised son. So he does what the father does. Now he's human and Abraham's human. So you see him repeat the mistakes of Abraham, but you also see him doing the things that Abraham did. So this is what the son, the promised son, the Messiah does in the gospels is he says, well, I can only do what I see the father doing. And God's not going to just go around and jump off of buildings and things like that and go, ta-da, here I am, aren't I great? which is what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do, to usurp the path that God put him on, to put Jesus on, and sort of grab hold of the Messiahship in his own way. So even though the goal of the Messiahship, living out the, the totality of what the Messiah was, was God's plan for Jesus, the way in which the devil was trying to get Jesus to do it was wrong. And so he was taking the single passage, two verses, out of context, of the whole scripture, and then applying them to Jesus. Now, there's other places where things are quite miraculous. You know, when Jesus was speaking in the synagogue of Nazareth, and they drug him out because they didn't like what he had to say about Gentiles being grafted into God's people, and they were going to throw him off a cliff, it just says he walked through the crowd and went away. And there's other places as well where, you know, they wanted to kill him, but he snuck away and things like that. So it's not like Jesus didn't put himself in, quote, dangerous places, by virtue of him living out the truth and speaking the very things of God, men who had their own agendas and their own goals were going to fight against him and try to put him to death. And eventually he was put to death. And so hanging on the cross, was Jesus able to claim Psalm 91? Well, in one sense, yes, because in the broad scope, what is our life? Our life is hid with Christ in God. We are not our own, we were bought at a price. And so we have to stop and think for a second and say, wait a minute, there is a much bigger life, a much bigger existence than the one I'm living right now. This is not the end. In, in materialistic evolutionary thought, when you're dead, you're done. And you go to oblivion. And there's nothing, zero. You cease. Whereas in our biblical worldview, so all you have is the now is what I'm saying. You have to grab life at the fullest and take it, you know, all this stuff, you know, go out, go until you're dead type thing. 
But in our, but that doesn't help you with your fear, with anything that God has instilled into you as a human to embrace and want your life to count for something and be remembered, you know, that kind of thing, you know, forever. I mean, people want to be remembered. People don't want to be left alone and be left to uh, um, just vanish away and not be remembered. There's something in us that wants to be, wants our life to count for something. And so if we look at the whole scope of what the Bible teaches, we go on into eternity. And so our life is not just for the now, it's for the future. It's probably more for the future than it is for the now. Because the now, we may be dying of cancer. We may be getting hung on a cross. We may be getting stoned. We may be having somebody get on our case about something. We may be poor. We may be suffering in some way or another. But the reality is, is that if you're doing it, with your eye on the Lord Jesus Christ, who also suffered, who also went to the cross, who also died, there is a resurrection and there is an ascension that follows. <laughs> and just as Jesus lived according to the will of the Father and died, he rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven and then he's glorified. And so we also, as his people who follow after him, will be dead and then we will raise from the dead to newness of life, literally, and then we will ascend to heaven and be glorified. So we follow the exact same pattern, but we have to train our minds to think that way. And the only way to do that is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So I say all that to say, the devil will twist the word of God. There are people out there in this world that, that will say things like, this philosopher man, we must learn to read the Bible correctly. I 100% agree with you, but you are not reading the Bible correctly. You are twisting it. You are making it say what it doesn't actually say. And as a result, you are harming the people of God who sadly don't know the word of God well enough to know that you're twisting the word of God. So do not let people do that to you. Read, 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 read. Put yourself before the Lord and read, read, read his word. Let it penetrate your mind, your heart, your soul until you think the way Jesus thinks and act the way Jesus acts and speak the way Jesus speaks. And then when people say things to you or you see something on the YouTube or on, you know, read some book and you go, that's not right. What, what, that is sadly not right. That's terrible what that person just said. They just took that verse out of context and they applied it to themselves in a way that is not true <laughs> or whatever you want to say. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of examples I probably could give, but I'm going to leave it at that. So God bless you and I trust that you will go off and read the word and that in your reading you will have your mind transformed into the mind of Christ. So let his Christ dwell in let his mind dwell in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. So God bless you. If you'd like to support the podcast in any way, there's a link uh, on a page that you can click. Otherwise, I'll just keep on doing what I'm doing. And uh, I hope that this summer you're planning to do some mission work and God bless you and keep reading the word of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. 
That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you.